This is your Wednesday Daily Delivery. I am Michael Rand. Plenty of good stuff to get to today. I'll be joined in just a little bit by Adam Frommel from NBA Math. Um, cool site that I had stumbled on uh, maybe a few months ago. been kind of you know watching some of their content. They had an interesting um, player ranking, ranking every basically every single player in the NBA that played at least one minute last season. Got a panel together. They've done this for four years in a row now. Um, you know, giving every player basically a a, a grade, um, kind of depending on what tier they feel like they fall into in terms of talent and how they performed by the end of last season. So I talked to him about you know several Timberwolves players, where they fit into that. Talked a little bit of Ben Simmons, kind of how that fits into the possibility of a trade, things of that nature. So interesting conversation with him coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, but first, what did I miss? You know, we're at the point of the Twins season, and we've maybe been at that point for a long time now where, you know, the individual game results don't matter a whole lot. Um, it's even almost, like, frustrating sometimes when they win because, they're like, why couldn't you have done that, you know, three months ago? You know, Colome, why couldn't you have, you know, pitched a one, two, three, ninth inning like he did on Tuesday when it, uh, when it actually mattered more? But, you know, passes in the past, you can't change that. Um, so like I've talked about here before, you need to kind of focus on the, you know, the small victories, the individual results, things like that. You can still relish a 4-3 win over the White Sox. Twins have generally been playing a little bit better lately. Um, you know, they took three out of four from Houston and now they've, you know, they won the second game of this series against Chicago after getting blown out on Monday. But, you know, in particular, I want to talk about Griffin Jacks, the pitcher who pitched, uh, for the Twins on, uh, on Tuesday night. And I've, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. I think I've maybe mentioned this when I've talked to Patrick Royce a couple times, but um, both times I've, I've been to two Saints games this season, one with my dad and one with uh, my, my baseball road trip friends. And both times Griffin Jacks was the pitcher for the Saints. And, you know, he you watch him pitch and he pitched. I think I believe he pitched pretty well uh, in St. Paul for the AAA team both times I saw him. But you see him pitch, he doesn't really like, you know, necessarily wow you. His stuff is is fine, um, you know, but we, we tend to get more excited about prospects that are, you know, either A, like lighting up the radar gun, right? That's that's the first thing. Like, whoa, he hit 98. He touched this, touched that. Like, Griffin Jacks doesn't really do that. His fastball is fine, but it's more like, you know, one of those low to mid-90s fastballs that probably would have been, probably would have been a big deal, you know, 30, 40 years ago, but now everybody has a lot of velocity. You know, he's got more of a, a pitch mix. He's kind of relying on keeping hitters off off balance, locating. Um, you know, his stuff is good, but not overpowering. And when you watch someone like that, you know, especially as a prospect, it, it's not you know you don't be like you're not like wow this guy this guy could help right away. This is go you know, get him up here. But you know that said, he's been with the Twins for a while now and is you know starting to kind of figure some stuff out. His last four starts, all of them against good teams, by the way believe that this was a second out of those four against the White Sox, and he also pitched against Houston and, I believe, St. Louis. His ERA is under three in those starts. He's given the Twins a chance to win in all of those games. Had a ton of strikeouts. He had 10 strikeouts the, uh, yesterday um, in, in that win, um, you know, getting double digits in that category. Not really his M.O., but, uh, you know, obviously you take the outs however they come. But, uh, you know... <sighs> I still don't know quite how to feel about him long term. You look at his, you know, you look at his minor league stats. They're not 
great, you know, career minor league ERA, you know, below four, you know, but obviously suffered from missing, you know, missing the uh, 2020 season. So, you know, he's an older, older debut guy. He's 26. He'll be 27, you know, in a few months here. So this is kind of his shot. And he's he's making the most of it to this to this point at least. You know he had a rough beginning to this uh, of his of his career of his you know kind of dipping his toes into the water, but lately been much better. So if we're talking about Twins pitchers who could potentially help, who you want to get a longer look at, if you didn't really have Griffin Jacks in that mix, and I'll be honest, I didn't necessarily have his name in that mix. I'm at least in the camp now where I want to see more. Where I'm like, okay, you know, it, potential is one thing, uh, production is quite another and if he's going to keep doing this if he's going to keep you know putting up you know putting up numbers like that putting you know putting up you know six innings three runs which is perfectly acceptable outing um you know or other outings where he's had you know five innings one run things like that like if we see more of that this season um you know he could be a factor going into 2022 and the twins most definitely are going to need all the arms they can get I'm Chris Hine, Timberwolves beat writer at the Star Tribune and the first five-time guest in daily delivery history. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This work is made possible by our Star Tribune subscribers. For unlimited access to the articles mentioned in this podcast, our coverage of Minnesota sports from pros to preps, and even all of Rand's future blog posts about how the Timberwolves should trade for players they will never get, go to startribune.com slash subscribe. Happy to be joined today on Daily Delivery by Adam Frommel from NBA Math. It's a good, uh, it's a good name for a site. It really tells the story of what they do, and they they have a really interesting player rankings that they put out. Um, this is the fourth year they've done it. Crystal Ball rankings, essentially Crystal Math. Uh, if you want to shorten it up, I guess that sounds a little bit dangerous. But uh, Adam, welcome to the show. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you doing this. I saw. I've been kind of watching the rankings as they've uh, been released. I think I follow you on Twitter, and that's so why I saw the you know the team by team, and then the full player rankings that just came out not too long ago, if I'm not mistaken, a couple days ago maybe or you know, a week ago at the most. So let's start with um, kind of the methodology for how you you rank every single player who played a minute in the NBA last year, right? That that's kind of the, that's the, that's mm-hmm. your entry point. Mm-hmm. What's the, what's the methodology and, and how do you kind of arrive at your, your kind of tiers of players, I guess. Yeah. I'm glad you use the word tiers. Cause that's always been so important to me with this project. I I've never been as concerned with the difference between the 11th best and the 12th best player in the NBA. So much as making sure that we can build this, this tiered hierarchy that groups similarly valued players together. So as, as you mentioned, this is a project that we've been doing preseason and postseason editions for the last four years at NBA math. So this is obviously the postseason, the postseason edition where we're looking back to kind of capture a snapshot of this moment in time. It's not necessarily forward-looking how they're going to play during the next season. It's not how they played uh, in totality through the year so much as the level at which they finished. So we, we've we used NBA Math's uh, current staff members, former staff members, national writers we've engaged with over the years who we know follow the league um, from that national perspective um, and can properly evaluate each player and ask them uh, myself included, to grade every single player who logged at least one minute in the league this season on a 1 to 12 scale. So it ranges from you give a 1 to a guy you believe just shouldn't get minutes at the NBA level, a 5 is 
a player you would qualify as a low end starter. You can only give out 112. It's reserved for your best player in the league, so on and so forth. And by having that consistency with you know, 12 different tiers rather than grading on a one to five scale or something, as long as each individual evaluator is consistent within their own rankings by aggregating those together, we can come up with the crystal basketball scores that you see displayed. So it's how many people are doing the rankings generally? Uh, this year was a little bit smaller of a group. We typically we've had like 25 or so. I believe okay. it was 15 this year. Okay. That's pretty good sampling though. So if you aggregate all those numbers, you get one number that basically tells you what, what this player was at the end of the season and kind of gives you a snapshot of if you kind of go team by team and player by player, kind of, you know, where they fall in the hierarchy of the NBA. And what, what remind, uh, remind the listeners to what is your, what is your background? What makes you, how do you, uh, how did you come to do this site and what, uh, you know, what makes you uniquely qualified to put this project together? <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I wrote about the NBA uh, from a national perspective for Bleacher Report for a little under a decade before moving into more of an editor role in recent years. Uh, and just having that, that national perspective and focusing not just on the star players, but on the players who we're expecting breakouts from and the guys who deserve more minutes over the years, as well as trying to incorporate a lot of statistical analysis into my work in a way that is approachable. It's not that highbrow, like we're just going to throw a bunch of numbers at you so much as try to help weave them into the overall story and make it accessible. So NBA math was sort of the the child of developing a number of metrics that I needed to find a way to house somewhere uh, and just have a place where people could access the databases in public fashion. And it grew from there. We, we ran some sports writing programs to help uh, younger writers you know, uh, have a platform and, and grow both as writers and as, as people who could analyze data. And because of that, we've just curated relationships with people who do have that understanding that analytics is just one piece of the basketball evaluation puzzle. You know, we, we never want to lean solely on that just as we never want to lean solely on the eye test, but rather blend them together properly. So our, our mission statement has been that every stat tells a story um, and it can, and it's just always important to make it clear what the context is for that story, what exactly that story is trying to say, what the shortcomings are in that story. So just having a bunch of like-minded people uh, is, is what makes this project a success. It's very cool. And so I want to talk to you primarily about the Timberwolves finished 23 and 49. That is obviously the team in this market. They got somewhat better as the year went on, I guess a lot better because they started really poorly. Um, I think 16 and 20 since the, after the break, after that, you know, the seven and 29 uh, start to the year, but the individual players are interesting on that team. So I want to talk to you about you know, the players in the context of how they finished last year. And like you said, this is a key distinction. Like this isn't a projection for the future. This is the here and now. So, you know, Wolves fans listening to this podcast, don't be mad that, you know, for instance, Jaden McDaniels, who a lot of people here think very highly of maybe overvalue a little bit because, uh, you know, he's a defensive, uh, defensive oasis in a desert of uh, poor defense. Um, he's, he's a, he's a basically a two that's not very high in your rankings. How, how do you, how do we square that? How, how do we think about Jaden McDaniels as we kind of think about this roster? I love Jaden McDaniels's potential just as that 
kind of three and D archetype that I, I think is realistically achievable as well as just the bundle of energy that he brings to the team. And he's a great example with this process where it's kind of hard for guys to make truly significant jumps in our scoring because we have a preseason addition where we were that's the, that's the time to be more predictive, just sure. guess where we think they're going to finish. So he finished with a score of 2.07 in the preseason edition, which is firmly a guy who just doesn't deserve minutes jumped all the way up to 3.38, which was the number 252 score in the league in our postseason edition. That's one of the biggest jumps we saw from any player. Personally, I don't think it was high enough just because there, there is so much more to plumb there. And I think it's obvious, you know, you mentioned, and I love that phrasing that, you know, he's, he's the, the defensive hallmark of this, this roster that has so many poor defenders. And I think that alone says how much value he has to the future of this organization as somebody who fills cracks in the lineup that not many other players on the team are capable of filling at the moment. Absolutely. So that was the, I was, I was reading, I'm sorry. I had two things pulled up. That was the preseason rating. So Jaden did improve quite a bit as the year went on a um, couple other interesting players on, uh, on, on the, on the list that I want to get to. You know, I think, you know, two of them in particular um, Malik Beasley and D'Angelo Russell, and maybe even Anthony Edwards, you know, we can lump all those three guys in that you kind of have them like kind of right at that low end starter fringe, mm-hmm. you know, D'Angelo a little bit higher. I mean, those are, I mean, we, we kind of know what Carl Anthony Towns is to a certain degree at, at this point. I think he was number 22 overall in the ranking, you know, all NBA caliber player, certainly, you know, head and shoulders above the rest of the players on the team, at least right now. But those other three guys, assuming nothing else happens this off season, and we can talk about that a little bit in a minute too, kind of the, the key cogs to, are, is this team going to be better or are they just going to settle into this, you know, two, two nice games out of seven kind of uh, mentality where it's just not really happening. So maybe we can talk about, let, let's start with D'Angelo Russell. Cause he's such an interesting and important piece. And you know, he's a max guy, part of the Wiggins trade. The reason they didn't have any draft picks this year. What, what, what do you think of D'Angelo Russell and his, his both his overall number and his fit? It felt like a pretty appropriate overall ranking for him. He finished with our 73rd score at 6.08. So in that mid-tier starter range, you know, the the kind of player he is, it's pretty obvious at this point. He's a pretty decent shooter. He can create for himself. He doesn't necessarily finish well around the basket. He's a a good, still developing passer and then a defensive black hole. Uh, and that, that last part is the issue here, right? Because you're, you're putting him on a roster that doesn't have that much defensive excellence around him. Carl right. Anthony Towns, for all that he's improved at on the interior, on the defensive end, still not really a stopper. Malik Beasley, not really much of a defensive player. Anthony Edwards showed some strides there, not really much of a defensive player. So for, for that reason alone, I think the fit is always going to be a little bit questionable, but I, I always wish that we evaluated players less with the contract and focus because you know that's that's the sunk cost right if, if yeah. you're going to move him it matters but I, I think it's it's so easy to criticize players like D'Angelo Russell who yeah they're, they're overpaid but they're also still high quality players Anthony Edwards and Malik Beasley you know just just under that kind of 5.5 threshold to be solid starters, but Ant obviously a big mover this year, up 1.5 from 
the start of the year. Maybe let's let's start there. Um, where do you think he'll be at the end of next season? I think he'll be closer to seven at the end of next season. Um, and and my grade was was actually a pretty big reason for his improvement. I I, I gave him a four before the season started, and I actually ended up with a seven here, which meant wow. that I viewed him as a high end starter right. by the end of the season. Uh, I was. I was pretty vocal in my criticism of that pick going into the draft. Um, I'm actually a University of Georgia alum. So I really wanted him to succeed. But having watched him at the collegiate level so closely, I had a lot of questions about his positioning on the court, whether he could stop himself from taking those hero ball jumpers and, and did not think that he should have been one of the top picks in this draft. And that seemed to be a little bit validated at the start of the season, but it became quite, quite clear, quite quickly, just how much of a mea culpa I was going to have to give because the improvement that he showed throughout the season with his defensive positioning, his willingness to pass his knack for cutting off the ball and positioning himself in a way that didn't hinder the spacing for his teammates. There were so many strides more so than what you would expect, even from such a highly touted rookie that I I'm really excited to see what he has in store for us in year two, especially without that pandemic shortened off season that didn't allow for the integration into the NBA culture that you typically see. I know we got to think about that with him. I mean, he was drafted on November 18th. There's barely a training camp. Free agency starts like a week later. The season starts like a month later and he caught up quick. That was, you know, I was skeptical of him early on as well, especially when it seemed like LaMelo was going to be so far ahead of him at, you know, at the, at the start of the year. And he, he did close that gap, but um, that's a, so if we're thinking of him that way, and let, let's talk about Malik Beasley quick, because I think that it leads to a different conversation too. But you've got Malik Beasley, again, a 5.46, very close to that kind of 5.5 solid starter range, you know, more of a low-end starter. Does he have room to grow still, or does he feel like a, a guy we kind of know what he's got? I feel like there is room for him to grow. I mean, he's not going to turn 25 until late November this year, and he was – kind of a late bloomer even beyond that because he played so infrequently for the Denver Nuggets during his first two seasons. It wasn't really until the 2018-19 season where he'd carved out a significant role in the rotation and started to show just how valuable his shooting could be. I was I was thrilled to see the the rebounding improvement in particular this year, the continued growth as a passer without sacrificing that scoring prowess that he's always put on display. And it's just the defense that still needs to take those substantial strides. And you know, as we've hinted at multiple times already, that's so vital given the surrounding pieces. I don't know how reasonable it is to expect significant strides on the preventing end from him, but given his age and relative inexperience, considering that age, uh, it's at least possible. So we got to talk about Ben Simmons a little bit, and he's probably got to, I, I imagine, I don't know this because I don't know who was in the rankings and stuff like that, but imagine he was fairly polarizing uh, based on the way the season ended for him with, you know, Let's let's be honest. Um, it's it's hard to say one person cost the team a playoff series, but that was as close to uh, close to that as I could see with with Philadelphia losing to Atlanta. His he still is number thirty in your ranking, still very high. Where you know, as we think about a possible Ben Simmons trade, do you see ammunition enough on this Timberwolves roster between players and picks to to get there, or is that 
a, a kind of a fool's errand that we should stop even thinking about here? It really depends on whether Philadelphia is willing to lower the asking price, because right now it feels like that asking price looking for multiple first round picks, multiple young players all in the same package is not really realistic. I've kind of had a feeling that this is going to drag on into the regular season, but these new reports that you know he might not be willing to report to camp and, and <laughs> might not play at the beginning of the season, that changes everything, obviously, because he's such a good regular season player that he probably would have been able to rehabilitate a little bit of that value and get more. So if Philadelphia is willing to make those concessions, then yeah, I, I do think that Minnesota has enough to to make some sort of move for him, whether it should. I think that's that's the more relevant question. And I, as much as he would fill in those defensive cracks, uh, very much an all defensive player on a year in year out basis and deservedly so, he's at his best with the ball in his hands because he's not much of an off ball threat. And do you want to do that with Anthony Edwards continuing to show growth as a shot creator with Carl Anthony Towns demanding so many touches? And that's where it becomes a little bit tricky to me because I don't think you want to end up in a situation where you've made this big blockbuster move to acquire Ben Simmons and you have him go stand in a corner. Yeah, you can't do that. That's not that's not the player he is. He's got to have the ball. And you're right. Edwards has shown flashes. Simmons is so limited in his offensive game it just feels like a roster fit potentially if if, if you got the right system in place if, if Chris Finch could kind of work his work his magic to a certain degree but it doesn't feel like that's going to happen this year it feels very much like this is an off season where they're not maybe going to make that signature move that they're going to go into next season with largely the same core pieces and you can say well they didn't really get a great look at all of those guys together, at least until the end of the year. And they didn't have Beasley at that point either because he was shut down. Um, if, if, if nothing much else happens for the Wolves this offseason, what do you think of a, 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 essentially a core of Towns, Russell, Beasley, Edwards, obviously, and you know maybe McDaniels emerging and then kind of the pieces around them? Is that enough or are they a couple more moves away you know long term from from anything that you know is 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 going to go anywhere i think it's enough to make a move into the western conference's playoff picture uh, again just because i've done such a 180 on anthony edwards's future here that i do think there's enough room for growth that he could be that guy especially alongside towns I don't know that there's really enough here to move beyond that, that realm where you're excited about making the second round of the playoffs, because as exciting as some of these young pieces are and as much room as there is for internal improvement with the incumbents, because towns only played 50 games and they had difficulties working the rotation uh, onto the court at the same time there's still too many holes on this roster. You know, I I think we know, as, as you said earlier, we know who Towns is at this point. He's not going to become a defensive player of the year caliber stopper at any stage of his career. We know what Edwards upside looks like. We know that Beasley, while he could improve on defense is not going to become some perimeter stopper. And the same is true of Russell. So it, it still feels like their one star move away. And that's still assuming that this progression we saw within his rookie season from Edwards continues in some sort of linear fashion, which is always hard to guarantee. Where are you going to get that star though? I'm, I'm increasingly 
that's just the discouraged part, about right? that notion. Just, you know, I, I know Gerson Rosas wants to make big moves like that. It just, it, it, you look at the capital they have. Yeah. If they would have gotten a uh, top three pick this year, you could imagine them, you know, getting you know, very interesting in, in the trade market. But without that, um, it, it's, it becomes a little bit harder to, to fathom unless some team really wants some combination of, you know, the, the ESPN trade idea that was floated a week or two ago of Russell Beasley and a couple future first rounders is, I mean, it seems like that's enough to me, but I don't know if that's enough for Philadelphia. And I don't know if that's the best offer they're going to get. They're probably holding out for Lillard. Right. Exactly. I do think that, you know, this team is, is one of those that benefits from the way the NBA has developed from a player empowerment standpoint, where we don't really know which star players are going to become available during a season, during an off season. There's sure. always surprises at this point. Who, who could have foreseen that Paul George would end up with the Los Angeles Clippers, that Russell Westbrook would end up with the Los Angeles Lakers. Now there, there are these surprising moves that seem to emerge every few months because players do have that power to, to dictate their terms within a contract that they have not had until recently. So I, I do think the Timberwolves benefit from that because we just don't know right now. Last thing, really enjoying this conversation with Adam Frommel from NBA Math, the founder of that site. Give him a follow. Give the site a follow on Twitter. And uh, so last thing for you, where, you know, there's not a lot I imagine that happens between, you know, a, a end of this season, and the start of next season. But, you know, how do you how do you assess, you know, how do you assess this roster? Uh, do anybody does anybody make another jump just from you know, off season thinking about year one to year two for Edwards or something like that. Does anybody make a leap even, you know, just in, in a rethinking or reimagining of, uh, of them, you know, in the next three or four months here? I think McDaniels is the obvious candidate there. And, you know, the local listeners are, are more aware of his potential and what he's already brought to that proverbial, the proverbial table than a lot of national ones are because the Timberwolves weren't really being featured on, on the big national TV broadcasts. Nope. <laughs> I would put, I would put Nas Reed up there too. Yeah. He's going to turn 22 in a few days here. Uh, definitely has a lot of intriguing upside there. Uh, the fact that he shot 35.1% on threes as a sophomore uh, while still finding his footing in a larger role without sacrificing the physicality, there's something more to plumb there. I don't know what it is yet, but there's at least a lot of growth potential from him. Uh, you know, could we see something more from Jared Vanderbilt? That uh, there, Josh Akogi, if he develops an offense to the point that he's willing to shoot, uh, Jarrett Culver. Uh, we, we saw him make defensive strides. Is, is he a lost cause on offense? There is still enough youth and untapped potential here that I do think that there are enough players that could kind of reframe this conversation in a few months' time. Kogi's really good from like one of the corners. I can't remember which one it is. If he just like would only shoot that specific corner three, maybe we'd have something. Yeah. Yeah. And I would love to see it because his defensive intensity makes him such a fun watch on a nightly basis, even without the offensive acumen. Absolutely. Adam, great stuff. Appreciate you hopping on daily delivery today. Um, and good luck. Uh, good luck with the podcast. You guys do a great job with the, with the podcast, the hardwood Knox podcast and, uh, everything over at NBA math. So take care. Maybe we'll chat again down the road. Okay. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Good stuff from Adam. Be sure to check out all of his work. Go to nbamath.com. Like I said, Hardwood Knox, good podcast as well. So check those things out. 
I want to pivot to the Vikings for a minute here. Uh, Andrew Kramer had a good story that touched on something that I think is, you know, I've harped on special teams at various points in writing and on this podcast, but uh, he had a good story about the, the punt return battle, uh, I mean, punt return and kick return battle for the Vikings this season, which I don't think we should overlook. Um, he had the stat that I've harped on a lot in his story, which is last season, um, the Vikings had 69 punt return yards. In 16 games, 69 punt return yards. Um, you know, only they only returned 16 punts. Uh, you know, which is telling you that you know either their punt returners weren't uh, you know weren't taking a chance and returning the ball, or you know the opposing punter was you know hitting him where he wanted to and not not returnable kicks. But when they did get their hands on the ball, only 69 punt return yards. It's like four, a little over four yards per punt return. You know, that, that that had been a strength in past years. Marcus Sherrills, you think back on that, you know, even thinking back on when they had Marcus Sherrills and Cordero Patterson, like they were, they had a premium kick return game and that really fell by the wayside this season. So, you know, if if there's some newcomers that can help with that, I think D.D. Westbrook is supposed to help with that. You know, some other youngsters trying to take take that role and run with it, so to speak. Um, you know, don't overlook that as you think about this team, like those little yards, those five, 10 yard chunks that they're not getting or hadn't been getting, uh, in the return game last season in particular, those are going to, those are going to be important. Those are very important for a team that might be on the fringe of a playoff berth this season. Um, and, and hopefully for them, special teams doesn't cost them the playoffs. It's, it sends them to the playoffs this year. Let's finish with the cooler. If you don't post a video of yourself working out, did it really happen? Saw a tweet with a you know picture of uh, Kirill Kaprizov lifting tires. Looks like he's in Russia right now, uh, lifting tires in the rain. Very uh, very rocky moment for him. Um, at least he's staying in shape, right? As these contract negotiations play out, no uh, no new word on that. Spent a lot of time talking about that on Tuesday, but uh, you know he can lift a, he can lift a giant tractor tire. So good for Kirill Kaprizov. That's it for today. Join me again tomorrow. We'll have good stuff as always Friday. Expecting to have Dave St. Peter, Twins president, on the show to talk a whole bunch of stuff related to that team. Thanks again for joining me. Download the podcast, read Star Tribune, startribune.com, and we'll catch you again on Thursday.